This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Is methane a climate monster or myth? Growth of the natural gas industry in America is explosive, with U.S. exports going from nothing in 2016 to world's largest methane seller in 2023. The government predicts gas exports will double by 2027. Cornell professor Robert Howarth returns to Radio EcoShock, reporting the whole liquefied natural gas process leaks so much methane, it may be worse than coal for the climate. Oxford professor Raymond Pierre Humbert tells us methane worries are overblown. Carbon dioxide is the real threat, driving Earth to a horrible hothouse state. I'm Alex Smith. Welcome to Radio EcoShock. Facing growing calls for climate relief, President Biden just paused approval for construction of America's largest liquefied natural gas export terminal, called CP2 in Louisiana. The U.S. methane gas production has skyrocketed. Europe and Asia are hungry for more. There are already seven LNG ports and another five under construction. That is great news for investors and the fracking industry, but terrible news for the environment. We did not know how bad until a new study emerged. The greenhouse gas footprint of liquefied natural gas, LNG, exported from the United States. There we find a catalog of methane leaking, venting, and burning all through the chain of supercooling the so-called natural gas into a liquid state, the massive tankers to deliver it all the way to the electric generating plants in Europe or Asia. It is a trail of increasing emissions of the super-warming greenhouse gas methane. Is that the bridge to the future? The study's author is Robert W. Howarth. He is the David R. Atkinson Professor of Ecology and Environmental Biology at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. For over a decade, Howarth has been tracking fracking and methane, but not all scientists agree with him about his findings as we will hear in our next interview with Oxford climate physicist Raymond Pierre Humbert. Is the whole move to LNG a dangerous scam for the climate? Is it worse than coal or a distraction from the real threat? Here we go. Radio EcoShock. From Cornell University, Robert Howarth, welcome back to Radio EcoShock. Thank you. It's great to be with you. In 2011, you and I talked about methane leaking out of fracking operations and city pipes. Back then, the export of liquefied natural gas, or LNG, from the U.S. was banned. After the ban was lifted in 2016, the American LNG export industry grew from nothing to the world's largest exporter today. That is explosive growth, isn't it? It's just amazing how it's 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 changed. It's uh you know, natural gas production has increased dramatically in the United States. Uh, it's almost all fracked shale gas. Uh, the production rate exceeds our domestic consumption. And so the, the gas industry lobbied to change the rules in 2016 to allow export. And as you say, we're now the world's largest exporter in the, in the world. The market and prices for American methane gas went way up when the Ukraine war interrupted gas from Russia to Europe. 
Was this fortuitous for the U.S. gas fracking industry? And do you think the geopolitics of war is driving huge expansion in LNG exports? Well, well, yes, it, it certainly is. I mean, it, uh, uh, LNG is bad from a climate perspective. It's got a, a terrible uh, greenhouse gas footprint. But, of course, it, it does allow the oil and gas industry to, to increase their fracking and gas production here in the United States and, and make a handsome profit off of it. And the, the disruptions in Europe caused by Russia invading Ukraine has you know, provided them uh, a glorious uh, backdrop to, to sort of justify this, if you will. It was just announced President Biden will pause the application for the country's largest LNG export terminal, that one in Louisiana. But there are still five more already in construction. Surely the government did an in-depth study of the climate implications before permitting this dash for gas? No, they, they, they did not, in fact. You know, what, what the law that passed in 2016 said is that the president and the Department of Energy have to certify that exporting LNG is in the national interest of the United States, but it doesn't speak specifically to climate, and they haven't really done a climate analysis. The Biden administration, in putting the pause on it yesterday, which I applaud, I'm glad to see them do that, have said explicitly, of course, that uh, it can't be in the national interest of the United States unless it's acceptable from a climate standpoint. And so they're, they've charged the Department of Energy specifically with looking at that climate aspect, but so far they have not. Robert, what did you set out to do in your new paper? Well, people started urging me several years ago to do a life cycle assessment and look at the greenhouse gas emissions from LNG, and I I simply wasn't able to have the time, the bandwidth, if you will, to, to start working on it until oh, spring of last year, 2023. But I, I spent the spring and summer into early fall uh, pulling together the, the data that are available, and it turns out there's a lot of information available on what the emissions might be, and I, I submitted a paper to a peer-reviewed journal back at the end of October. You know, the, the conclusion of that is you, you start with fracked shale gas. That's the uh, product from which LNG is made. Fracked shale gas already has a pretty large greenhouse gas footprint. It takes a, a lot of energy to do that fracking, all the drilling, the processing. Uh, there are carbon dioxide emissions associated with those uh, development processes in addition to when you finally burn the fuel. And there's a lot of methane uh, emitted from, from fracked shale gas as well. So that that's a bad starting point. For LNG, you take that fracked shale gas and you liquefy it to, to really cold temperatures. That takes a lot of energy with more carbon dioxide emissions and more methane uh, leakage from that. And then you transport it by tankers, and the, uh, e- even the most modern tankers have significant methane emissions and, and, and significant carbon dioxide emissions as well. So you know, what what my paper concludes is that if you use the best available technologies and the best available tankers, the greenhouse gas footprint of LNG uh, delivered on average from the United States globally uh, is is at least 27% worse than the greenhouse gas footprint for coal. So it's pretty bad. If you use uh, older technologies and the older tankers, some of which are still out there making the way around, uh, the greenhouse gas emissions can be two to three times worse than coal, Huge, hugely bad. So from a climate standpoint, uh, LNG is just a really, really poor idea. One shocking result of your analysis, you say, quote, in all the scenarios considered, total emissions of unburned methane exceed emissions from carbon dioxide, 
from the final combustion of LNG. Just getting the gas overseas to power plants is worse for the climate than burning the stuff? Yeah, that that's correct. I mean, the the emissions from burning the fuel in the end are are significant. They're they're not trivial at all. But the the, the emissions from the methane, the unburned methane that's emitted all the way from when you first drill a well to when you frack it to when you uh, transport the gas to the LNG terminal at the terminals in the tankers, a lot of methane leakage. And again, there's a lot of carbon dioxide that's emitted from the from the energy that's used to to power this so it's a hugely industrial process and and you know basically what they're doing uh, at at the LNG uh cooling plant the refrigeration plant they're burning uh that fracked shale gas to provide that power it's uh, approximately 10% of the gas that's delivered to them it's burned in order to liquefy the rest that they transport and similarly for an average tanker there's another 10% of the fuel that they're transporting, they burn that for their fuel uh, while they're in transit. So there's this huge energy tax that, and all adds up to both high methane and high carbon dioxide emissions. Why do LNG operations and some ships allow methane to escape when that is a money-making product? Well, you know, the it, it, it is a money-making uh, product, but let's look at the old tankers and the about 10 to 20 percent of the tanker fleet uh, globally today does not burn LNG for its fuel. Instead, it burns heavy fuel oils and they, they have old engines that are simply not capable of burning LNG. So they're transporting the gas. It's in uh, super cool liquid form. Some of that evaporates off. It's called boil off by the industry. And it's inevitable and you have to get it out of the tanks or else you've got a, a pressure problem, explosion risk. And what those old tankers do is, is simply admit that to the atmosphere. Now, is that an economic loss? Yeah, but they, they lack the ability to do anything else with it. And, you know, the, the only real alternative would be to get rid of your old tanker and buy a new tanker, which is better able to handle the LNG. When you look at the brand new tankers, and there, there are a handful of these, there are two cycle engine tankers that actually burn that evaporated uh, gas as it comes off. So they're using it. They're not emitting it to the atmosphere. And they're overall fairly fuel efficient, so their carbon dioxide emissions aren't aren't as bad as those older tankers, but they're actually not very effective at burning the methane that's coming out of the gas as it liquefies. So some of that's emitted in their exhaust stream, and there's a technology for capturing that just doesn't exist. Critics question your use of a 20-year global warming potential instead of the 100-year GWP used by other climate modelers. Why use the 20-year numbers? And does that change the results? It, it, it does. You know, uh, methane, for the time it's in the atmosphere, is more than 100 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide, but it, it doesn't stay in the atmosphere for as long. It's got a half-life of about 12 years. So 12 years, half of what we emit today is gone. In 24 years, 75% of it's gone, et cetera. If you use a 100-year time period to look at an emission today, it severely understates the, the damage that methane does. And you know, if you look at the latest United Nations uh, IPCC report, synthesis report from 2021, they tell us that of all of the global warming that's occurred uh, on Earth since uh, 1900, that uh, methane is, is responsible for about one-third of, of all of that warming. If you use the 100-year global warming potential in your calculations, you'd have no idea that that's true. It simply understates it. And the 20-year does a much, much better job. 
Here in New York State, where I live, uh, the state mandates by law that we use a 20-year because it, it better captures the reality of methane. And although it's true that uh, many analyses and many governments still use the 100-year potential, that's that's really based on outdated science. And I, I would just say that the, the President of the United States himself, Joe Biden, he talks about methane frequently. I, I applaud him for that. And he regularly refers to methane as a greenhouse gas that's more than 80 times more powerful than carbon dioxide. That is the language of a 20-year global warming potential. If that's what the United States policy should be if we want to follow the leadership of our president. As I said, the LNG export business spun up from nothing in America in 2016 to the world's largest today. That's just eight years later. With a rapidly deteriorating climate and low costs for solar and wind, maybe the industry will collapse in a pile of bankruptcies in another eight years. If that happens, all the methane added by the industry will be almost gone within 12 to 20 years. But if coal provided power for those eight years, the CO2 from coal will stay in the atmosphere for hundreds of thousands of years. Isn't that worse for the future than using LNG? The, the latest science suggests that carbon dioxide uh, doesn't stay in the atmosphere as, as long as we would have thought even five to ten years ago. Uh, Michael Mann has written uh, quite a good bit about this, uh, as have others. And and, and so it, it's we don't want to burn any fossil fuel. We don't want to increase carbon dioxide in the atmosphere for sure. But but the the residence time of of carbon dioxide is not as as long as we would have thought. The difference is is again less. Quite aside from that, methane we put in the atmosphere today, it's not that it's gone in in 25 years. Three quarters of it's gone in 25 years, but a quarter of it's still here with its high warming potential. And you know we're we're approaching the COP21 in Paris, the nations of the world uh, said we really wanted to keep the planet below uh, 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, warming from the pre-industrial baseline. You know, we're we're at that target now. We're approaching it. This past year may have reached it. It's an unusually warm year because of the El Nino cycle and all, uh, so it might go down a little bit. But we're on target for certainly uh, within the next 10 years to uh, break through and stay sustainably above that 1.5 degrees that increases the risk of irreversible climate disruption hugely. And methane is contributing substantially to that on that time scale. If we, if we just say, oh, it's all about what happens in a hundred years, we're missing the boat of the, of the potential for absolutely catastrophic uh, situations to occur within the next decade, maybe two decades. There are all kinds of recent agreements on methane reduction, like the Global Methane Pledge. That was launched at COP26 by the European Union and the United States. What do you make of the methane control plans so far? Well, the plans are fairly new. I'm, I'm glad to see that they're there and that nations are, are paying attention to, to methane finally. I will say that almost all nations in the world under account for methane emissions from the oil and gas industry. Oil and gas industry is probably the single largest source of, of human emissions of, of, of methane. Here in the United States, the official values from EPA are five-fold lower than what the preponderance of peer-reviewed literature shows. And you talk to the Environmental Protection Agency about that, and they say, well, they don't use the peer-reviewed literature because they have access to to the information from industry, and industry is closer to the problem. So they rely on, on industry information. What they're using is unverified 
industry self-reporting that's clearly too low. The industry's been uh, consistently over the last several years saying that their emissions are going down and down, when in fact the independent data from academic studies show that that's not true at all. The emissions have been staying the same per production level. Production's going up, so the emissions are going up. What, what's happening, of course, is that industry now knows that people are paying attention and, and therefore it's in their interest to make it seem as if the emissions are going down and that's what they're reporting. My, my argument here is that if we want to do a good job of instituting agreements and really reducing methane, we have to start with knowing the truth of what the emissions are. And so far, not only our government here in the United States, it's a global problem. International Energy Agency acknowledged this in a report from two years ago. Governments globally are under-accounting methane from oil and gas industry. They're paying too much attention to, to just relying on industry. And if we don't know what the emissions are and where they're coming from, how can we really do a good job in reducing them? So we, we need to get on top of this and, and use the independent information, which is now available widely from satellites, for instance, showing very high emissions. Robert, you have been one of the few trying to keep the fracking conversation real, publishing about it for years. What got you on this track? Well, I started working on this back in 2009, about the time that fracking became a, a big deal. Of course, you know, fracking is a 21st century invention. The use of high volume hydraulic fracturing and, and high precision directional drilling, uh, that, that wasn't possible uh, in, until uh, the early years of, of this century. And it really has taken off since, since 2009. I've worked on methane emissions uh, off and on uh, ever ever since the 1970s. It was part of my PhD thesis. So when the fracking revolution started to occur, I, people weren't paying attention to what it might mean in terms of increasing methane. And I, I kept hoping someone else would, uh, some other academic would pick it up as a research topic, but but people weren't. So I I got together with my engineering colleague, Tony Ingrafia, who knew the technologies inside and out, and that's what led us to our first paper. And, you know, since then, uh, we've sparked a huge amount of interest. Our, our paper in 2011 was the first. From Cornell University, we have been speaking with Dr. Robert Howarth. His latest paper is The Greenhouse Gas Footprint of Liquefied Natural Gas Exported from the United States. Find links and a whole lot more in my blog for this program at ecoshock.org. Robert Howarth, thank you for talking with us again. Yeah, thank you. Check out the Radio Ecoshock website. We're at ecoshock.org. Well-known environmentalists are fighting a dramatic expansion in the natural gas industry. The American president has just paused approval for a huge new liquid gas terminal near Louisiana. Intergovernmental agencies say cutting methane emissions is the first fast step to stop warming above 1.5 degrees C. But an Oxford professor calls it all a mass delusion and wishful thinking. What is going on here? Let's talk with Dr. Raymond Pierre Humbert. He is the Halley Professor of Physics at the University of Oxford, a lead author on the third assessment report of the IPCC, and a specialist in planetary climate dynamics. From Oxford, Professor Pierre Humbert, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Yes, thank you. It's nice to be here. Why are you calling out this push to reduce a potent global warming gas thought to cause at least a third of warming? 
Yeah, so so first of all, with regard to the framing you had in your introduction of, of fight against liquid natural gas uh, exports, one has to distinguish between the carbon dioxide you release by just burning the natural gas for home heating or whatever purposes and and the uh, warming that's caused by uh, leakage of methane as methane. And uh, my, my statement re- refers to the uh, uh, sort of oversold idea that methane leakage is maybe the first order of business in terms of addressing the climate crisis. That's what I refer to as a kind of a mass mass delusion. And we can get into the reasons later. But the main reason for objecting to expansion of natural gas has nothing to do with the methane leakage. It's that natural gas is a fossil fuel. And while it emits less carbon per unit of energy produced than coal, it still emits carbon. And so uh, we do need to eliminate our, our reliance on natural gas as well as all other fossil fuels. That's not in question. And that's not part of my mass dilution statement. Common wisdom in climate circles, over a 20-year time span, methane is 80 times worse than carbon dioxide. In a presentation last July, you did list that as one of several methane myths. It's not? Oh, no, that is one of the methane myths. But uh, but you, you haven't distinguished here between the uh, methane leakage issue and just the fact that methane is a fossil fuel. The main issue with, with methane and natural gas is just that when you burn it, it releases carbon dioxide, just like when you burn burn fossil fuels. When you burn natural gas, the CO2 you produce does not have any more or less warming effect than any other CO2 you produce by burning fossil fuels. The question that's at issue with this this really misleading 80 times figure is what happens when methane gets released as methane into the atmosphere. And your fundamental point is kind of a brain cracker, and at first I did struggle with it. We should think of carbon dioxide as a stock, an amount accumulated, but methane as a flow. Can you help us understand that? Yes, certainly. That is at the heart of it. And so to begin with... The most fundamental thing you have to understand about methane versus carbon dioxide is that carbon dioxide is removed from the atmosphere only extremely slowly by geological processes, by dissolution in the ocean and ultimately by conversion into rocks, conversion into basically limestone that happens over geological periods of time, thousands and thousands of years. So that uh, any carbon dioxide you put in the atmosphere uh, stays there and continues, most of it stays there uh, and continues to cause a great deal of warming uh, over thousands of years. So, for example, if you were to stop emitting carbon dioxide completely, then the warming, however warmer you've made the atmosphere, you've made the climate at that time you stop, that's the temperature you're stuck with for the next thousand years, and it only goes down slightly over the next 10,000 years. And the corollary of that is that for carbon dioxide, as long as you continue emitting any amount of carbon dioxide, the carbon dioxide will accumulate to higher and higher levels in the atmosphere and the Earth will continue to warm. So that's why we have to reach net zero carbon dioxide emissions. Now, methane, on the other hand, degrades in the atmosphere over a period of about 12 years. So if you emit some methane in the atmosphere and then you stop, the the temperature more or less returns to normal in about 20 years. Not entirely, but that's that's a a reasonable broad picture. So the amount of methane in the atmosphere 
because methane does not accumulate in the atmosphere the way CO2 does, the amount of methane in the atmosphere depends on the rate of flow of methane into the atmosphere, not on the cumulative amount that you put into the atmosphere over all times. Whereas carbon dioxide accumulates in the atmosphere like a poison accumulating in the fat of a fish swimming in mercury-laden waters, and it just keeps building up as long as you emit it. And so the stock of CO2 in the atmosphere depends on the entire cumulative emissions of carbon dioxide over all past time, whereas the amount of methane in the atmosphere depends on a rate, depends on the rate of flow of methane into the atmosphere. And so you, you can't really, in any equitable way, any fair way, uh, make a, a broad brush comparison of methane emissions with carbon dioxide emissions. Well, does that mean that if methane increases and the rate increases, that's when the warming happens? Like if, if uh, let me put that a different way. The more carbon dioxide we add to the atmosphere, the more Earth warms for thousands of years, as you say. But you say warming from methane only increases if and when the rate of release into the atmosphere increases. Is that it? That's that's exactly right. There's a certain amount of temperature change that's associated with a certain rate. So to put that in the context of sheep, which emit methane, a certain amount of methane per sheep, each year, let's say that one sheep increased uh, the temperature of the earth by one micro degree. Okay, that's not a real number, but let's say, let's just say for the sake of argument, one sheep increased uh, living while it's living increases the temperature of the earth by one micro degree. Then um, as long as that one sheep is living, uh, you have your one micro degree uh, increase in the earth's temperature, but it doesn't continue warming past that. Uh, if you uh, have two sheep, then you, you the amount of warming you live with from your two sheep is two micro degrees and so on. A thousand sheep, you get a thousand micro degrees. Now, actually, I'm actually overestimating how much warming you get for each individual sheep. But that illustrates the, um, the general uh, issue there, that it's the rate of emission that determines the warming you get. And so the amount of warming, which is what the ultimate measure of damage to the earth is, amount of warming uh, depends on the rate of emission, uh, whereas the uh, the damage to uh, the Earth's climate from carbon dioxide depends on the total tonnage that's been emitted uh, every year in the past up until today. And so the uh, warming from CO2 accumulates as long as you continue emitting CO2, whereas the warming from a given emission rate of methane stops increasing, uh, essentially stops increasing after about 20 years. So next, if you'd like, uh, uh, we, we could get into just where the fallacy or the misleading nature of this 80 times worse than CO2 number is. Well, I would like to do that, and I sense that this has to do with these global warming potentials, the numbers that have been assigned uh, as the climate community has developed this whole subject. We have GWP, Global Warming Potential 100, or GWP 20. Where do those numbers come from? These, these GWP uh, numbers, these, these uh, equivalents, they were meant to be a kind of, a kind of currency conversion factor, just like you have a currency conversion factor between dollars and pounds or, or pesos and zlotys or whatever. The, uh, the GWP's attempt to shoehorn a comparison of methane to CO2 uh, into just a ton-for-ton ton equivalent. It says, uh, it, for example, in the GWP20 number, it says that 
one ton of methane emitted is equivalent to 80 tons of CO2 emitted. But we've just said that uh, that's the wrong comparison. It doesn't tell you how much warming is caused by each emission. Uh, one ton of methane emission uh, will cause uh, a little blip in warming that decays after 20 years. One ton of CO2 emission will reset the climate essentially forever. So um, uh, you're, it's it's worse than comparing apples to oranges because apples and oranges are both fruit. The, the GWP numbers uh, are conversion factors that try to compare uh, a certain tonnage of methane with a certain tonnage of CO2, which is the wrong pair of things to con to compare. What you really need to compare is a certain uh, tonnage per year of methane with a certain absolute emitted tonnage of CO2. And so even the units of this conversion factor are, are wrong. And so the, the different numbers on GWP, GWP 20, GWP 100, they refer to how many years you average the effect of methane uh, over when comparing to the uh, effect of CO2 emitted over the same number of years. And you get, you get lower equivalents the higher that number is. If you, that number in the, uh, after GWP is GWP 1000, is a much lower number than GWP 100. Uh, GWP 100 is a much lower number than GWP 20. And people who seek to exaggerate the importance of methane control, and get me straight, I, I'm not saying methane control is unimportant. It's just not as important as some of the more rabid proponents say. Those who want to exaggerate the effect of methane and the importance of methane in the grand scheme of things gravitate towards these low numbers, like uh, these low indices like GWP 20. But I should say that the GWP concept, this ton for ton equivalence, was introduced in the first IPCC report uh, as just an example of the challenges of trying to compare one gas with another gas, a short-lived gas like methane to a long-lived gas like CO2. Uh, it was meant to be illustrative of one way to approach the problem, but the authors did not actually advocate it as the way the policy world should actually do the assessment. Uh, nonetheless, it took on a life of its own, and it's been used as a kind of a sledgehammer by the people who are arguing for aggressive methane control for one reason or another to uh, to try to uh, put that onto the front of the agenda, when what really needs to be on the front of the agenda is just getting the carbon dioxide emissions to net zero. Methane's a sideshow in that regard. Yes, and we're going to talk more about that in just a minute. Now, in a 2020 paper you co-authored with uh, John Lynch and Miles Allen and Michelle Kane about a possible fix, it seems to me, called GWP-STAR. What is that? Now, I said just before that the correct comparison between methane and CO2 is to equate a certain rate of emission of methane to a certain cumulative amount of CO2. And so GWP star uh, is, is our factor that actually uh, converts rate into tonnage. Uh, and it gives very different uh, results uh, for the importance of methane versus uh, versus CO2 because it does take into account the fact that if you have a steady rate of emission of methane, uh, that corresponds to just a steady temperature uh, and doesn't cause the temperature to increase in, indefinitely. I think people, including some scientists, are concerned even a short increase in methane emissions may stimulate other feedback loops or tipping points that aren't reversible. I mean, once we 
kickstart a forest die-off or burn it off or change an ocean current, it may not revert to its alternate state uh, 20 years later when the methane has deteriorated. Uh, it may be thousands of years. Does that short-term impact worry you? No, it's, uh, that, that's, another, that's another fallacy because the uh, warming is still predominantly due to CO2. And so you're, you're no more likely to trigger a tipping point by methane emissions than you are to trigger a tipping point by carbon dioxide, which is, is still a, a, the dominant influence on the climate. You're actually much more likely to trigger a tipping point by carbon dioxide because what we know about a lot of these tipping points is that some of them take a long time to set in. They require warming to be high for a fairly extended period. So when you warm the climate by emitting carbon dioxide, then you reset the temperature to be higher for thousands of years. So that gives you a lot of time for that warming to trigger a tipping point. Whereas uh, with with methane, since you actually have the chance to dial it back down at some point in the future, you're much less likely to have as extended a period of warmth from that to trigger a tipping point. But we, we should get back at some point to just exactly what's wrong with this 80 times equivalent figure, because um, it does come down to the fact that a steady emission rate of methane doesn't cause a steady increase of warming. And uh, we can talk through some examples of just exactly how that plays out. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. And you are listening to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest is Oxford professor of physics and climate specialist Raymond Pierre Humbert. We are talking about the myths and realities of methane. So would you expand on that? What What is the problem with the 80 times? So it's become absolutely the go-to statement in uh, among journalists uh, in newspapers. You see this, you know, in the Guardian and all over the place. It's become the go-to statement in any article about methane to say that methane is 80 times worse than carbon dioxide over a 20-year period. And um, sometimes they even leave out the qualification over a 20-year period. But even if you leave that qualification in, that 80 times figure is e- extremely misleading. And so what that leaves out is the fact that uh, in the first 20 years, well, let's let's put some concrete numbers on it. The total world emission of methane by agriculture, by agriculture and fossil fuel leakage is estimated at something in round numbers like 300 million tons, 300 megatons per year of methane. And so um, in this 80 times equivalent, based on the GWP-20, that, that, would, that would be equivalent to uh, 24,000 megatons per year of carbon dioxide. Now, if you actually look at what happens if you emit that amount of carbon dioxide steadily versus if you emit that amount of methane steadily, what you find is that the two curves track. The amount of warming you, you get for the methane versus the CO2 based on that 80 times number, those two curves track for the first 15 years, roughly. So in that sense, for the first 15 years, the the equivalence looks pretty good. But in that first 15 years, only a rather small amount of warming actually happens, you know, something like two-tenths of a degree. And so past that time, past that first 15 years or so, the warming due to methane stops increasing. It's essentially flat, and it will stay essentially flat out to you know, a thousand or more years. But the warming due to the carbon dioxide, which 
is the, the supposedly equivalent emissions. Past that 15 years, the warming due to the carbon dioxide keeps growing. By the end of 100 years, you've, you've warmed the climate by about a degree. By the end of 200 years, you've warmed the climate by, by two degrees. Just from that equivalent of the methane, uh, the equivalent emission of CO2 to the methane emission based on GWP20. So the, the reason the 80 times uh, over 20 years is a misleading figure is that, yes, that's true, but that only applies to the first 15 or 20 years. And after that, the methane warming stops. And But the world doesn't come to an end after 15 or 20 years. The climate keeps on changing. The importance of methane versus CO2 is exaggerated by looking at, at the GWP20 equivalent. Because ultimately, the CO2 will always cause much more warming than the GWP equivalent uh, emission of methane. I get it. But when we add up all the energy and emissions from fracking in Texas to shipping and then methane burned in a U.K. electric power plant, do you think LNG is worse than just burning British coal in the first place? Oh, uh, LNG is way better than burning British coal, for sure. Uh, the And the only estimates that have ever been made that natural gas is worse than burning uh, burning coal are, are, ba- are based on, well, there are a number of flaws in some of the estimates, but the biggest flaw is using GWP-20 equivalents. Because uh, depending on what the estimates of methane leakage are from various fossil fuel productions, you know, maybe the statement worse than coal might uh, be true if you were to think of just burning coal for 15 years and burning natural gas for 15 years, and then you stop both of them. But that's not how the energy systems work. We're talking about a steady supply of energy extending way beyond 15 years. And uh, in in that case, GWP-20 greatly overestimates the warming that would be due to the methane leakage. And so between all the factors, it, it is a definite benefit to climate to switch from coal to natural gas. Part of that is that natural gas power plants are much more efficient at turning fossil fuel into energy than um, coal-fired power plants. And in addition, because of the chemical composition of methane, each kilogram of CO2 produced corresponds to a, a, a larger energy output than, than is the case for coal. So, so natural gas is doubly more efficient. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that methane, natural gas, is still a fossil fuel. And so you can get your emissions down by, say, half by switching from coal to natural gas, which is more or less what happened in the early days in the UK. But you can't get it down further. And if your energy usage continues to grow before long, your methane, your methane CO2 will, will continue to grow with them. So that's why uh, methane can have a limited use as a transitional fuel. But we need to stop using natural gas entirely in order to halt global warming. But it's not primarily because of the leakage. It's it's just because methane is still a fossil fuel and it still releases CO2. What we need to go to is is heating homes, say, in Britain or anywhere. What we need to go to is heating homes with heat pumps powered by renewable energy rather than, than heating homes by burning anything at all whether it's methane or oil or whatever. In a December 2023 article in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, you wrote, part of it is people don't realize how much warming we're in for due to carbon dioxide if we continue emitting the way we've been doing, 
and said methane is a drop in the bucket compared to that. Really? Well, so yes, if you, um, the, uh, as I said, even if you could eliminate all of the warming due to emissions of methane from fossil fuel production leakage and from agriculture, and that would be a really big ask, especially for agriculture, uh, the amount of warming you would shave off might be a, might be something like a quarter of a degree. And that's nothing to sneeze at, but also that's if you really get rid of all the, all the human caused emissions. But it's something like a quarter degree, and that might look like a biggish number compared to, say, uh, the one and a half degree warming, which we're starting, which we're approaching pretty soon. But if we continue to emit carbon dioxide at anything like the rate we're doing now, we, we will blow way past one and a half. We'll go to two degrees. We'll go to four degrees of warming. And, and that, that amount of, amount of warming you could avoid by even very aggressive elimination of methane emissions. Well, it's nothing to sneeze at. It helps. It's still small potatoes compared to the amount of warming we're in for through continued emissions of CO2. And remember, again, if we develop technology to eliminate methane emissions 100 years from now, it still helps because the climate, that part of the climate damage will recover in, in 20 to 20 years or thereabouts. Whereas uh, delaying action on carbon dioxide leads to an, inner, an irreversible increase in the warming. So that's why the, these sort of sound bites you get on, based on how much warming from methane has has happened so far, what proportion of the current warming is is due to methane. They they they're not looking into where the big problems are coming in the future, and so that's why it's essential to do something to turn around CO2 emissions and get get them heading towards zero as as fast as we as fast as we possibly can. You also have to take into account when people quote the amount of warming due to the methane increases in the atmosphere that while we um, have good indications of how much methane has increased in the atmosphere over over the past several hundred years, uh, that doesn't tell us where that methane came from. Some of that methane is not actually a direct controllable result from human activities like agriculture or fossil fuel production. Some of that is actually a feedback that is caused by the warming of the planet, which then causes release of methane at accelerated rates from wetlands and um, and perhaps from permafrost and things like that. The, the part of the methane emission, uh, the part of the methane increase that has been due to feedbacks like that, feedbacks on warming, uh, that can only be controlled by halting warming. And the more warming we have, the more of those feedbacks we'll have. And ultimately, that warming will be increasingly dominated by carbon dioxide emissions. And speaking of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, I believe you were part of the team that determined the doomsday clock should be set at 90 seconds to midnight. What is midnight, and is climate one of the reasons we hover in those last few seconds? The doomsday clock was started in the wake of World War II and the atomic bomb development. It was started by atomic scientists involved in the Manhattan Project as a way of alerting the world to the uh, risks of, of nuclear war. In, in later years, the climate risk was added to the uh, kinds of existential risks, major risks to disruption of society that the doomsday clock measures. Uh, and so, uh, since in the last, uh, two decades or so, we have factored in both the risk from climate disruption and the risk of nuclear war as primary factors in setting where the doomsday clock uh, is, is set. We also track various other existential risks like, uh, bio warfare, cyber terrorism, 
And of course, we, uh, we, we are aware of the discussion surrounding artificial intelligence, but those other things are still rather hard to quantify, especially uh, artificial intelligence risks and cyber terrorism risks. So it's fair to say that the, the main ingredients in setting the doomsday clock are, are, are climate disruption and nuclear warfare. And they have both gone into our decision that uh, although we're not advancing the doomsday clock closer to midnight, we are still frighteningly close to midnight. Uh, and, uh, and circumstances do not give us, unfortunately, any justification for pulling it back further from midnight. Ray, you've been swimming upstream on this methane question for quite a while. Myth or not, it is a powerful fear for a lot of people. But we've used up a lot of your valuable time. What is your parting message for listeners who want real climate action? Yes, yeah, so, so if you want real climate action, you should keep your eyes on carbon dioxide. Now, I, I, I don't want to leave people with the impression that controlling methane emissions is unimportant. If you can control methane emissions without having that detract from efforts to control CO2 and get to net zero CO2, that's a good thing. And so things like regula- regulations that force fossil fuel companies to not uh, leak so much methane into the atmosphere, those are generally good. Those are low to no cost things, and it's hard to say see any any reason that they would actually get in the way of uh, reducing CO2 emissions. But if too much of the political capital and too much of the public attention is focused on on methane rather than CO2, then there's the risk that the efforts will disproportionately go to methane. So my parting shot is, yes, it's good to find low-cost or no-cost ways of reducing methane emissions, but still... That's not the main issue. It's carbon dioxide emissions. And the main thing is to get carbon dioxide emissions to zero as soon as we possibly can. From Oxford, we have been speaking with Halley Professor of Physics at the University of Oxford, Dr. Raymond Pierre Humbert. You can find links to follow up in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Raymond, thank you for spending time with us. Thank you very much. Very nice talking to you. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. This is a climate emergency. Find out more on the blog, ecoshock.org. A U.S. government reports LNG export capacity for all North America, including Canada and Mexico, is likely to more than double through 2027. But that was before Joe Biden heard the polls showing voters, especially his supporters, want climate action. Millions of Americans have been slammed with long-lasting heat waves, storm after storm, fires, smoke, and the weirdest out-of-control weather they have ever seen. This climate issue is getting personal. Give it to me straight. Is this the big checkout? Come on, level with me. How bad is it? It's not bad. You'll be fine. You'll be back on your feet in no time. Near the end of January, President Biden did announce a pause in the application for that large export terminal in Louisiana. That may stall another seven new applications to build LNG ports, but there are still five already going in construction. Surely the government did an in-depth study of the climate implications before permitting this dash for gas? Not at all, as Robert Howarth told us. The 2016 law pushed by the gas industry lobby lifting the ban did not include any climate requirements. The law simply required the president 
and the Department of Energy to certify the export of gas is in the national interest, as was the case in earlier energy permitting law passed in 1938. That is all. As far as I can tell, Robert Howarth's new paper is the first full-cycle analysis of methane from the ground through liquefaction, shipping, regassing, and pipes to electric power plants. Howarth does not include emissions from the construction of all these new ports, tankers, and pipelines. You can find more on that in this 2022 paper by Kirsten Rosslott and colleagues, Greenhouse Gas Emissions from LNG Infrastructure Construction, Implications for Short-Term Climate Impacts. You can find a link to that in my blog at ecoshock.org. The law approving massive expansion of American LNG exports does not count climate impacts at all. What an amazing blind spot that needs to be fixed. President Biden's recent action at least acknowledges that a project that damages the climate and saddles Americans with climate-driven damages could not be in the national interest. The Department of Energy is now charged with looking into the climate impacts of this proposed Louisiana megaport. That is why it is on pause. I think the DOE is legendary for being energy-friendly and at times captured by the fossil fuel lobby. A long history of revolving doors between DOE and industry figures ensures great relations with the oil, gas, and coal producers, and so do big campaign donations. A previous study in July 2023 by Deborah Gordon, Drew Schindel, and their colleagues investigates methane leakage. The title of this open access paper is Evaluating Net Lifecycle Greenhouse Gas Emissions Intensities from Gas and Coal at Varying Methane Leakage Rates. Find a link in my blog. Quoting from that paper's abstract, We find that global gas systems that leak over 4.7% of their methane, when considering a 20-year time frame, or 7.6% when considering a 100-year time frame, are on par with life cycle coal emissions from methane leaking in coal mines. Note those figures do not include carbon dioxide emissions when gas or coal are burned. Deborah Gordon and her colleagues continue, These numerous super-emitting gas systems being detected globally underscore the need to accelerate methane emissions reduction, accounting, and management practices to certify that gas assets are less emissions-intensive than coal. So we don't even know how gas compares to coal for sure when we add it all up. The methane gas binge is not limited to the United States. Two very large LNG export terminals are expected online on Canada's west coast in 2025 and 2027. They're shipping mainly fracked gas from western Canada. Mexico has three LNG ports under construction, quote, Fast LNG Altamira Offshore and Onshore, and Fast LNG La Cache, both located on Mexico's east coast, and Energia Costa Azul, located on Mexico's west coast, and that's from the U.S. Energy Administration, November 2023. So this is not just to save Europe. The story to cover this massive move into more climate-wrecking fossil fuels and gas, North America is acting to save Europe after Russian gas supplies were cut off. But research into commercial contracts 
by three American nonprofit groups finds only 18% of contracts for LNG exports is for European buyers. Europe is installing alternative energy quickly and reducing gas dependence. No, the real demand for this frack gas bonanza comes from Asia and from energy speculators. About half of these future gas contracts will be placings of major energy dealers looking to get the highest prices to win more profits and billions from this deadly game. The rest of us, including our descendants and all other species, lose. The groups called Earth, Public Citizen, and Bailout Watch just released their report, Methane Madness. You can find it at www.citizen.org or get a direct link for download in my blog at ecoshock.org. It's a free .pdf. It's short, it's direct, and well worth your time. Methane Madness. This report also claims building LNG export terminals will significantly raise prices for Americans trying to heat their homes and for American industry. Why? Quoting from Methane Madness, As the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, put it in a report, their internal quote, the expansion of LNG export capability has integrated formerly disparate North American regional natural gas markets into the global market, end for a quote. What that means in short, higher exports lead to higher prices. The main benchmark price for U.S. fossil gas, based on the Henry Hub delivered depot in Cushing, Oklahoma, has always been significantly cheaper than other global benchmarks used in Europe and Asia. But the more U.S.-produced LNG we export overseas, the more U.S. consumers become competitors in a high-priced global market. That's an end quote from Methane Madness. On the other hand, this Methane Madness report claims, quote, If built, the eight pending projects will produce the annual equivalent of 113 coal plants in planet-warming emissions. No, they won't. Our guest Raymond Pierre Humbert would object strongly. Leaking methane emissions from these LNG operations, from fracking to final destination, can never equal any coal plants. Escaping methane's warming impact will be half in 12 years and be very slight in 50 years. Burning coal releases large amounts of carbon dioxide that keeps heating the planet for thousands of years. You cannot compare the two. This exaggeration of methane leaks is all over the place. One investor newsletter tells readers, quote, If all projects currently in the permitting pipeline are approved, greenhouse gas emissions from the U.S. approved LNG exports would be greater than 1,000 coal-fired power plants. Well, now it's 1,000 coal plants. There is no source for that, and it is not true. But set all those numbers and the controversy about methane aside. The true threat is carbon dioxide produced by burning fossil fuels, all of them, oil, gas, and coal. If the climate movement and governments put limited attention and money into cleaning up methane emissions, we really are doomed. It is the carbon dioxide, stupid. Fighting methane is a popular battle. For the past couple of decades, the Russians were content to promote fear of natural methane from the warming Arctic seabed, but not their own infamous leaky pipeline system of gas sales. During the early 2000s, methane was the only allowable climate action 
for that oil industry president and vice president Bush and Cheney. They approved collecting methane from landfills, but tried to stop NASA scientist James Hansen from speaking about climate change. Unfortunately, while a real risk, humans have a history of using methane fear as a distraction. The fight against the largest carbon maker coal is making progress in many countries, especially as renewables like solar and wind are cheaper to install and operate. But we hardly hear a whimper about the oil that drives the world and wrecks the planet. Who is campaigning to stop new oil drilling? Who is trying to block oil tankers? Who will apply tough sanctions against oil-producing countries? Nobody. That silence could cost us a future you want to live in. If we do not slash carbon dioxide emissions with emergency action, we will lose this green nurturing planet to a hot, hostile landscape of extinction and extremes. Keep the focus. Stop putting carbon dioxide into the sky. What do the Davos men and billionaires think is going to happen? Here is Bill Gates with Alistair Campbell on the Rest is Politics podcast, January 2024. My last question relates to to climate. You do hear a lot of young people sort of feel that the climate battle is is kind of lost, that we're not we're not on track, that that the world is kind of burning and going to hell in a handcart. You don't think that. You're more optimistic. So just give that pessimistic young person a reason to be hopeful, but also a reason to get active. Well, there's a great book, the Hannah Ritchie, Not the End of the World book, you know, which some people will find controversial. It's it's a very important corrective to remind people, A, we are making progress, and B, you know, that the world does not end at two degrees. Um Particularly, in we don't Canada. want to get there, though. We will get there. There's no stopping us passing two degrees. In temperate zone countries, in terms of your overall economy or livelihoods, it's actually not a gigantic thing. Yes, you have to pay to make various changes. You have to have air conditioning, more like the U.S. does, and in kind of this pervasive way. The really bad stuff is if you let it go say, above three degrees, or if you live near the equator and you're dependent for your food on your yearly harvest, you have no savings. And so the fact that the weather is going to make things tougher, you know, that really is is quite dramatic. And so take, for example, the UK, emissions per person are down very dramatically. You you started the coal thing. Uh, now you're by and large out of that. You know, the government made some commitments, which I think are great, you know, to try and have nuclear be a complement to the renewables, which makes it more feasible to get completely green. You know, so climate, there's incredible innovation going on, which I have a group, Breakthrough Energy, that funds a lot of that. And what I'm seeing makes me very hopeful that we'll, you know, stay not too far above two degrees and that. The right adaptations can mean the overall impact is is not a, a super disastrous. I'm Alex Smith. Your comments and tips and ideas are welcome. Email me at radio at ecoshock.org. Thank you for listening and caring about our world. Sisters and brothers.
brothers, fathers and mothers, have you heard the word on the street? From Beijing to New York City, it's a number, it's the answer, it's 